Good morning, New Hope family. Glad to be with you today. I enjoyed a couple weeks off and got to do a little fishing. And uh, Michael and Kyle filled in for me, so glad to be back with you. We're in a hard question series if you're new to New Hope. And hard question that came up this morning is related to money. So lucky you, you're on a day when we get to talk about money. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, go to Mark chapter 10, if you have a Bible with you. Uh, Maybe you have it electronically, you can load it down that way. Also, if you need notes, they're in the back of the auditorium by that pillar there in the center area on the atrium side, or you can load those electronically as well. We're going to be talking about this particular issue, money, and here's the question that came up. What about the tithe? What, what does the Bible actually say about the tithe related to a Christian, and how do I understand what the Bible says in regards to money? So we're going to deal with the question right up front, and then we're going to dive into Mark chapter 10 to get God's perspective on money. Throughout my life as an adult, I've discovered that churches deal with the issue of money in a lot of different ways, and, and some are way, way, way overemphasizing and some pay no attention to it whatsoever. Uh, Example of way overemphasizing, I could point you to churches that I know of that actually at the end of services call people by name if they didn't give and ask them to meet the pastor in his office afterwards. That's like going to the principal, right? That that's kind of awkward. Um, And then on the opposite side, you know, you find individuals who say they're Christ followers but have absolutely no participation biblically following the mandate that Jesus gave us about giving to the Lord's work. So how do we understand that? How do we balance that? Well, biblically, giving is really intended to be a pleasure. God intended it that way. And He intended it to be a blessing, a blessing to you and to the work of the church. In the Old Testament, you'll find a mandate to giving, and the mandate is very specific. It's in regards to the thing called a tithe, and if you're new to the church, a tithe is actually means 10%. And so under Old Testament legalism, under the law, you would find that Israel was, as a people, they were required to give 10% of their annual income back to the synagogue in that case, if they lived near the synagogue or to the temple or to the tabernacle when it was just a a people living in a a tent community, and they would bring it to the tabernacle. So out of their livestock and out of their produce, they would give an annual gift of a tithe of 10%. But actually, if you drill down into the Old Testament, you find that the tithe went way beyond that. The the legal requirements for the tithe actually required that there would be a portion set aside for the priest and the function of the work of the synagogue or the temple, and for the feasts and the celebrations, and also for the poor in their community. So if you pushed it to the max, you would find that the person living under the Old Testament law was actually required to give 23% of their income annually back to the work within the temple. Now, fast forward to the New Testament, and you have the life of Christ, and Jesus arrives on the scene, and He says to the people who are living at that time, which are Old Testament individuals, New Testament hasn't been written yet, Jesus hasn't died and hasn't resurrected yet, but He's on the planet, and He says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law, and at the death of Jesus, He fulfills the requirements of the law, it's complete, it's completely finished. And after that moment in time, you will not find anywhere in the New Testament where it speaks to Christ followers as being responsible 
to continue with this tithing system under the law. You spend time studying it, and you'll find that nowhere in the New Testament, any place, does it designate a certain percentage of income be given to the function of the church. What it actually says is that giving should be in keeping with a person's income. Now, let's understand that. Look with me on the screen at this passage from 1 Corinthians 16. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia, so do you also on the first day of every week. Each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections may be made when I come. See, there's no mention of a percentage whatsoever. And, and Paul's very concerned about the church in Jerusalem. They're being persecuted by the Romans, they're being persecuted by the Jews, and so he's gone to the other churches and he said, hey, would you set aside some money to take care of them because they're starving to death? They're under the boot of Rome, they're under the boot of Judaism, and the people in the church couldn't survive. And so Paul was making a collection to take to them. But he says, do it on the first day of the week, Sunday, set aside according to how you prosper, and we get similar instructions like that throughout the New Testament, but no mention of a percentage whatsoever. Now, just because the New Testament doesn't speak of tithing as a command doesn't mean that it's silent on finances. To be really clear, the New Testament does address the importance of giving, and it addresses the benefits of giving, because again, God designed giving to be a joy and a blessing both to you and to the work in His church. We, New Hope, our responsibility as Christ followers is that we're to give as we are able, as I understand the New Testament, according to our capacity. And sometimes that means giving more, and sometimes that means giving less. It actually all depends on the needs within the body of Christ. What the New Testament does do is it consistently urges that Christians would use their God-given abilities and their God-given gifts to advance the work of the church, in other words, to advance the kingdom. Let me emphasize that with a passage right here from Romans 12, 4. Just bear with me. It's a little bit longer. It's four verses here. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. I can assure you that when you give here at New Hope, and we don't talk about that a lot, a lot of people are surprised that we don't even do offerings here. What we have are giving boxes on the back wall and in the atrium and down in the children's area. And people ask me, how do you guys do that without taking an offering? We set the standard a long time ago for the purpose of what we believed God was leading us to do when we launched in 2007 as a new church. We believed that that was a good procedure for us to put the offering boxes on the wall because we understood that God wanted individuals to give out of the joy of their heart, not because of the conviction or the guilt that an offering plate is in front of them. Uh, let's just be honest. You feel guilty when an offering plate is put right in front of you, don't you? Well, you may not want to raise your hand on that one, but I would just tell you, I did, 
as a kid growing up in church and as a teenager and as a young adult, when the offering plate went by, like I'm reaching for something, like I'm, everybody's looking at you, you're supposed to put something in. Well, that's not really giving according to New Testament standards. God says to do it out of the joy of your heart. So I can assure you that when you give here at New Hope, what you're doing is that you're directly impacting the kingdom because you're directly impacting the function of the church. Your giving advances the kingdom. And if you ever find yourself in a place where you're in a church and they're not advancing the kingdom, in other words, they're not presenting the gospel, you have to really ask yourself, should I be supporting that? Because we're supposed to be people who are advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you agree with that, say amen. amen. I, I think that's probably the majority of us. Maybe you're saying that at home right now. If you're part of a church that's advancing the gospel, you'd want to be part of promoting that and supporting that, either through your gifts, your abilities, or your finances, or combination of both. And this is what these passages are speaking to. So if you ever find yourself in that place where you're in a church and they're not advancing the gospel, you might want to say, maybe I shouldn't be supporting that. Above all, giving is supposed to be done with a really pure motive and with an attitude of worship, because what you're doing is you're serving the king by doing that. So in the New Testament, giving is not something to be done as much as an obligation like it was under the Old Testament legal system, as it is a privilege to be able to participate. Now, let me emphasize that with 2 Corinthians. Here it is from chapter 9. Now, this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly nor under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And thus we put offering boxes on the wall because we want people as they've given purposed in their heart. This word that God uses here in this particular sense of giving with joy and, and giving with a degree of cheerfulness. That word cheerfulness in the Greek language actually is the word hilarion. It's where we get the root word hilarious in the English language. To give hilariously. Not like you're walking up to the offering boxes and laughing out of the silliness of your head, but out of the joy of your heart. Like, wow, I get to be participating in this as a privilege. And, and if you're not, then maybe you're giving out of guilt. And I know people who give out of guilt. I told you that I did as a kid and as a young adult. Put money in the offering plate is a, a guilt action. Some people give out of guilt as though they believe it's putting them in the good column with God. Even to the degree that some people will give because they're buying off what they believe to be a failure in their life. And so they give out of that sense of guilt. Can I just remind you this morning that if you are in Jesus and He is your Savior, you are forgiven already? Isn't that great? You're already forgiven completely. You don't have to buy off God. Jesus already paid the price. So giving is not to buy off God and, and put yourself in the good column. Let me emphasize this with a comment Dave Ramsey made. Um, I know many of you are familiar with him from his radio broadcast. He emphasized it this way. Here's a truth bomb. Tithing isn't a way to earn God's love because we already have it. In Matthew 23, Jesus warns us against focusing too much on the rules of tithing without paying attention to the more important things like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Bottom line, 
You should be giving in some way, but tithing is more of a spiritual topic than a financial one. It's not about the money, it's about the heart. It's about living with the attitude that we've been blessed to be a blessing. That's pretty well stated. Good job, Dave. To be sure, some people feel very, very comfortable using the 10% figure of the tithe from the Old Testament model and apply it as a minimum standard for personal giving. I think that's excellent. If a person's comfortable with that and that's where they want to start at, that's great. If you choose that for the basis of your giving, wonderful. But just remember that you're under grace, not under law, and you're giving according to what God lays on your heart. So that brings us to the issue of what does Jesus actually say about this issue? We've been examining these passages in Scripture. What does Jesus say about tithing and about giving? I told you we'll look at Mark 10 uh, briefly, that story in just a moment, but also Matthew 23 speaks to this, and it records his thoughts in a fairly direct way. Look with me at this, Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Now, context. He's speaking directly to the scribes and the Pharisees. This is before the cross. It's the first century. And he's got a group of individuals who are living under the law, under the legal system of tithing. But he refers to giving as not being neglected. You want to advance what God's doing, but also not to be done at the exclusion of the weightier things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. As I said, in context, this is stated before the cross. And we have to remember when he refers to the tithe here, he's dealing with a group of individuals who literally carried scales with them. So they would measure out and not give God too much, would want to put too much dill in there, too much cumin in there, too much mint in there. So they had the scales and they literally would weigh out the scales so they would give God his portion, even down to the the 10th degree. And Jesus says, you guys, your attitude is wrong about this. That thought of tipping the scales in their favor, that's actually where this comes from. Their thinking is once they hit that standard, they're good with God. We've got it. And Jesus has just said to them, wrong. You've got this all wrong. You're wrong in your motives. Now, here's another segment that amplifies where God is at on this issue of money and giving and obedience, and it comes from Mark chapter 10. So if you do have your Bible open, just look over there with me for a moment. I'll set it up for you. We're going to pick it up midstream. A young man who's pretty wealthy, and we would say probably younger than 30. Most men, once they hit 30 years of age, were considered to be in elder status, maybe not classified as an elder, but in that category. Younger than 30, they would be called a young man. Well, this passage says we have a young man that's come to Jesus, probably younger than 30. And apparently he's got a big trust fund. And he's used it to his benefit to acquire a lot of properties or he's inherited it. He hasn't lived long enough to get what he has. So he's acquired real estate. And he comes up to Jesus and he asks a question. Teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' quick response to him is, well, keep the commandments. Let's start there. And this is his response. Verse 20, Mark chapter 10. And he said to him, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. 
Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Now, if you lived in the first century, if you knew individuals who had a lot of real estate, they were the one percenters. If they're the rulers who own real estate, which is what we're told this young man is, a ruler who owned much real estate, you're the 1% of the 1%. Only the ruling class were considered the extremely wealthy, those who were in governmental affairs, aristocracy, or those who had inherited a family fortune. So we have an extremely wealthy individual who's come to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to acquire eternal life? And Jesus set the standard for him. He's extremely wealthy. He's heard what Jesus had to say, and he turns around and walks. Let's go to the next part. Verse 23, and Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard will it be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. This is a really, really insightful conversation, this discussion between God and man. You've got the values of God on display and the values of man on display. Don't think if you're new to church or maybe this is your first time ever reading that story that God is disqualifying rich people from eternity. That's not what he's doing here. The issue that he's pushing is what are you doing with the wealth that you have? See, that this very wealthy man has been keeping the law since his youth should tell you something. It indicates that he's been really good with the tithe. See, he's a church guy. He's kept the law since his youth, meaning he's been tithing. He's been going to synagogue. He shows up on time. He does everything he's supposed to do, crosses the T's, dots the I's. I've done all these things since my youth. So Jesus isn't going after the question of the tithe with him. He's going way beyond that with this young man. He's going for the heart. He's been tithing all along. Mark emphasizes something for us. He says, Jesus looks on him with compassion. Now, you may not have picked that up when you read that because it said Jesus looks on him with love, but the word is agapeo. And it means an affection for, a brotherly love for someone. Why does Mark include that detail? Because as Jesus looks at him, he knows that this guy is so committed to his bank account and to his stock portfolio that he's allowed it to take first place over his relationship with the things of God. So even though he's a church guy and he plays by all the rules of legalism, Jesus says, you come up short because his thinking is it's about function. It's about doing something. When the offering plate goes by, I put money in the offering plate, so I'm good with God. And Jesus is resetting his thinking here. And the story ends really, really bad 
because he walks away from God. Actually, to the degree that Mark includes this word grieving, because he has such great wealth. I included one Greek word in your notes this morning. It's the word lopeo. And it actually means he's distressed. And it's tearing him apart. And the reason is because he knows who Jesus is. Good teacher, tell me what I need to do. But on this side, man, he owns a lot. And it's ripping him in half. And so he's grieving over this. And so Jesus watches him walk away. And he turns to the disciples. And we're told that Jesus looks around back at the disciples and says, that's hard. That's really hard. It's hard for someone who has a lot. It's hard for those who have material goods to enter into the kingdom because there's these competing entities going on, all these distractions that are ripping at you. So what Jesus has just done for us in a very brief way, he's just identified an obstacle which stands between humans and their willingness to hear the gospel. So we're not talking about believers in Jesus Christ who have wealth. That's a category in itself that has to be dealt with. What's first place in your life? We're talking about people who can't actually even hear the gospel because their wealth is so overwhelming to them, it's pulling them away from God. And that's what we have going on with this young man. He thinks he's good with God. In the Old Testament, the Jews looked on wealth as an indication of God's favor. But we also know that wealth can be a trap door. And the trap door is that it puts us in this place where we're very self-confident in, in believing that we've got self-sufficiency if we've got wealth. And that's the trap door to wealth. It, it can trap you. The disciples are so shocked at what Jesus' statement is making because in the first century, the mindset was firmly entrenched in the thought that if you have the world's goods, God must really, 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 really like you because he's blessed you over the top. And that's the mindset that the disciples can't get beyond. It's like, what this guy's... He goes to church. We see him. He gives abundantly. He follows all the rules. And Jesus says, you're not in. See, in their mind was if God really, 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 really liked you and gave you a lot, you're in the kingdom. And Jesus says, not so fast. There's a resetting of the thinking going on. This is totally contrary to the way they would approach this. They think the kingdom is already in this guy's future. And Jesus is saying, be very careful if you're wealthy, if you have wealth, and you may not think that you do this morning, but I'm going to push back on that. If you have wealth, it will be hard for you to enter the kingdom. Let me take you back to something that I, I don't normally quote the King James Version of the Bible unless it emphasizes the portion that we're looking at, and I'm going to do that with you in this story. Let me take you to Old English. King James Version of Mark chapter 10. Look with me on the screen at this. And Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words, 
But Jesus answereth, answereth again. My spell check had a really hard time with answereth. Didn't know what to do with it. Like, what is that? But Jesus answereth again and saith unto them, Children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure. We discovered when we were working through the parables that when Jesus repeats something with a dumbbell emphasis, He's not only trying to emphasize it, He's trying to give it clarity for the people who are listening. He's just said the same thing within a paragraph twice. Did you notice the shifting in the words? Let me show you the first way He said it in the King James Version. How hard it is for those who have riches to enter into the kingdom. And when the disciples are shocked, Jesus then clarifies it and qualifies it. Look next. This is the second statement. How hard it is for those who trust in their riches to enter into the kingdom. And I'm here to ask you this morning, what are you trusting in? What is your trust in for eternity? If your trust is in you, in your capacity, in your achievements, in your ability to manage the outcome, then clearly your trust is not in God. And, and that means that's an idol. Therefore, you have a false God. And that's what you find Jesus pushing back against with this guy. Your trust is in something else other than God. Have you known people whose money is their God? Jesus does, he spots it a long way off. He's not afraid to call it out. Let me give you a biblical view of wealth and poverty. I'm not sure where you classify yourself this morning. My gauge is you don't think of yourself as wealthy. My experience is that wealthy people never think of themselves as wealthy because there's always somebody who's a little more wealthier. Let's just look at a biblical view of poverty and wealth. And just, just take a minute, bear with me on this. When, when we hear the word poverty, immediately our mind goes to the person who's really poor. And in the American mindset, when we think of somebody's poor, many times we think, well, that person's slothful or they're lazy. That's just where Americans go to. You would find the biblical perspective is that that statement is not true. In the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, you find four classifications of people who would fit the definition of poor. There's, first of all, there's poverty from laziness. It's true. We do understand that. They're poor because they won't work and they are irresponsible. And in the New Testament, especially in Thessalonians, it says, if a man won't work, neither should he eat. And God's view towards laziness is always one of judgment, both in the Old Testament and New Testament. That is one category. But then there's poverty from calamity. And that's someone who suffered extraordinarily external pressures against their life. They're poor because of natural disasters. They're poor because of tragedy or they're poor because of illness. And those individuals have been reduced to poverty because of circumstances outside of their control. And God's compassion instructs those of us who have the things of this world to make provision for individuals who suffer in that way in those temporary situations. James actually writes, true religion is this, to care for the widows and orphans in their time of need. 
because there's individuals who find themselves temporary in places where they can't care for themselves. That's part of the work of the Compassionate Care Fund here at the church. If you've wondered what that is when you're giving electronically or maybe on paper, there's this little category called Compassionate Care. It helps us to pay power bills for people and to buy diapers and to put food in people's cupboards. That's what the Compassionate Care Fund is all about. Those are people who are poor from calamity. But then there's people who are poor from exploitation. And they're poor as a direct result of abuse and manipulation by those who are in power. And in the ancient world, you always found that to be the root of the government. When governments opposed people, they manipulated people. And so you have individuals like the pharaohs of Egypt or King Ahab in Israel who oppressed their people so severely that they actually put them in bondage. That's what King Ahab did to his own people so that he could increase his wealth. Well, that's in the Old Testament times, and you find in modern days dictators doing the same thing today. You look at what's going on in Venezuela, that's nothing but greed. Or what Saddam Hussein did to the people of Iraq, that's just individuals who are dictators stealing from the people, trying to amass wealth. That's poor from exploitation. But there's a fourth category. There's poverty for the sake of righteousness. And the Bible recognizes that category as individuals who are willingly embracing a lack of the world's goods in order to devote themselves wholeheartedly to spiritual things. And many people, in their mind, what pops up is a missionary in that moment. They think of someone serving overseas or locally who's given up what they could have had in another career in order to chase after the things of God in service. And they don't want to be distracted by wealth, so they're giving up the things of this world and all the complications of life that goes with having to maintain those things. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, you find that God's wrath is exerted against those who have lots of wealth when they use their position against his people. And so God gets really angry against Solomon and against King Ahab, and he pours out his wrath against others in the Old Testament because of the way they abuse people. Yet, in the Bible, we also find, and maybe you didn't know this, but some of the greatest saints of the Bible are also some of the wealthiest people on the planet. Abraham was incredibly wealthy. By Middle East standards, he was a sheik. Daniel lived a lavish lifestyle inside the kingdom. Job, incredibly wealthy. You fast forward to the New Testament and you find Joseph of Arimathea. Whatever he did in business, he was really good at because he could afford a very expensive tomb for Jesus to be buried in. Or Lydia, she was a fantastic businesswoman and had the church meet within her house because it was so, so large. When Jesus says how hard it is for a person who trusts in their wealth, it, it means if that's where you're putting your confidence, if that's where your trust is at, that's what Jesus emphasized in Mark 10. If that's what you're trusting in, that can't possibly provide salvation. That can't possibly provide eternal life. Don't go after that. So the question is, where are you putting your trust? What are you doing with the wealth that you have received? The premise in the Bible is that everything that we own, everything that we possess is the result of God giving us gifts. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, heavenly Father of lights above. God has given you all that you have. If you agree with that, say amen. We're of the same mindset then. 
All that you have is from God. So logically, naturally, God's going to examine to see what is it that we're putting our trust in. What are we doing with the things that he's entrusted to us? So very briefly, just as an example of what I'm describing here, let's talk about Joseph of Arimathea for just a second. We've got an individual who shows up on the scene very briefly in the Bible. You would even consider him obscure. He appears on the scene when Jesus is being crucified and has died. And we're told a wealthy man arrives and he provides a tomb so that Jesus could be buried in it instead of thrown out on the garbage pile in the valley, because that's where they would put crucified criminals. They would throw them in the garbage pile. But fulfilling Scripture, prophecy from the Old Testament, I doubt that Joseph even knew that he was doing that. He buys a tomb, and it's a wealthy man's tomb according to Scripture, and Jesus is buried in that tomb. Now, when you think of Joseph of Arimathea, have you ever heard of the great business dealings that he did? No. He must have been really good at business because he acquired a lot of wealth, but no one has ever heard of him because of his fantastic business ability, but rather because of what he did with his wealth for the kingdom. Today, he is known throughout the world because of what he did with what God trusted to him. He used his wealth to buy a very expensive tomb so that the body of Jesus could be buried with dignity. So Joseph is not remembered for what he had, but for what he gave to Jesus. And God could look at Joseph's life and see where his trust was at. So let's end with this really strange adage that Jesus throws in about the eye of a needle and this camel. Let's actually look at it the way that he stated it. Look with me on the screen, Mark 10, 23, or 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, if that statement is supposed to be taken completely at its face value, as being a complete statement, every one of us should leave the auditorium right now and go home and put everything we have on Facebook Marketplace and sell it. And then turn around and give all that money to the work of God. If you're gonna, if you're gonna take it at its face value, we should all empty our bank accounts. So is that what Jesus is really saying? Just get rid of all the riches that you have, just divest yourself of it? Because we, New Hope, are the most prosperous people in the history of the world. In the ninth century, there was this thought that popped up. People stumbled over what Jesus said there so much that historians began researching the gates in the city of Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is a walled city like many other major cities of its time. There were gates that allowed you to come in and out during the day, but at nighttime, the gates closed. And so these ninth century historians examined Jerusalem during the time of Christ, and they came up with this theory that what Jesus was talking about was actually a small gate in the wall of the city called the Eye of the Needle. So if you came in the evening and you've got your livestock with you and you've got your camel and your camel can't possibly 
get into the city through that big gate because it's closed, what does the camel have to do? According to these individuals who formed this theory, the camel would have to get down on his knees and somebody would get behind that camel and prod him from the rear and he would shuffle forward on his elbows, trying to make his way through the eye of the needle. The only problem with that theory, other than the fact that it makes for a really great story, to this day, there's no evidence that ever existed that that gate ever was in the city of Jerusalem. So it seems completely manufactured. That's not the only struggle that I have with it. That theory actually would indicate that somebody would be getting through the eye of the needle on their own ability. That they would make it into the kingdom of heaven, if you will, because of the work that they did. Here's what we do know. What we do know is that Jesus is using the largest known land animal in the Middle East that which was familiar to his contemporaries, and he's comparing it to the smallest possible opening that they could imagine. He says it's harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God than for this giant land animal to get through the little tiny eye of a needle. Whether those historians are right or not, I don't know. What I do know is Jesus is making it very clear. If you have the wealth of the world, it's very, very difficult to depend on God because all the things that we own become incredible distractions to us. R.C. Sproul is a theologian I respect. He died three years ago, but I like to read his stuff and listen to his podcast. And R.C. had an insight on this particular passage. I want you to see his quote regarding the reaction of the disciples. Look with me on the screen. The disciples are flabbergasted by Jesus' statement, and they ask, who then can be saved? Jesus says, with men, it's not just not possible. Do you see how hard it is for those who put their trust in wealth? Humanly speaking, it's impossible for that person to get into the kingdom of God. But with God, he says, all things are possible. It's possible to receive blessings of great wealth from God and still have our hearts focused on the kingdom of God. You hope we need to hear Jesus' warning on this issue because we are the most prosperous people in the world, history of the world. The most average person in our city right now has a better standard of living than any of the ancient kings of previous generations. That's a huge statement. Just bear with me. This last week, I was on a flight coming from the West Coast back here to the East Coast of Michigan, and I'm at 37,000 feet, and I'm thinking to myself, this is awesome. I can't believe I get to do this. Now, mind you, I was a flight major in college. Aviation technology was what I went after, commercial aviation. Got my licenses, got my degrees, and I'm still fascinated and blown away with aerodynamics. That we can jump in a plane in our day and age and fly to any place on this planet, it stuns me, let alone cell phones. What would Solomon have given to have cell phones? Or flushing toilets, come on. Look at what you have today. You may not think that you have a lot. But man, do we have a lot. The things that are available to us. And for us, the obstacles and the snares are everywhere. So I'm asking you this morning to consider the eye of the needle. 
Consider what Jesus has said here. Take stock of where your heart is at this morning. And I'm not for a moment beginning to suggest you just ignore your finances, never. God has blessed you with them. You've got to be a good steward of them. Rather, do this. Ask yourself how you're managing your money in relation to the kingdom efforts. Where does it go? To what degree does God play a role in your decisions? Because here's what you're finding Jesus doing. Jesus is acknowledging what we tend to willfully ignore. He's saying, this is tough stuff. This this is really hard. Because human nature wants to keep what it's acquired. I'm telling you, it's hard for me. I think you can identify with that. Human nature is we want to keep the things that we've earned. And Jesus is willing to call it out and say, this is tough stuff. That's really, really hard. But know this, this is the territory of where the Holy Spirit intervenes. Because of the work of God and the Holy Spirit in our life, He can cut through the hardness of our hearts. Amen? That's what He does. That's what He specializes in. And God can intervene and teach us. It's true. It's hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for all of us. By nature, we want to keep it. And we should enjoy the things that God has blessed us with. But we're also called to submit to the kingdom for the advancement of the kingdom and the advancement of the gospel. And Jesus is worth it. I know you agree with that. Jesus is worth that. So giving to the work of the kingdom, it's part of the evidence of God being at work in you. Expect to wrestle with it. It is a discipline. It is a habit. But God calls us to that standard. So I enjoy being able to work through these hard questions with you. I look forward to praying with you right now about this very issue. Let's pray together. Father, I'm thankful for every soul that's in the auditorium and every person who's watching right now virtually that we can together jointly examine your purposes and your will, what you desire for us. We we willingly acknowledge that you have designed giving for a blessing, and you want us to have joy in our heart when we do that. So God, I pray that you would continue to work on our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. And to some, you've even given the special spiritual gift of just being hilarious in their giving and and having such liberality in it. What a spiritual gift, Father. God, I thank you for this moment that we can gather together right now to have examined your word, lift these things up before you, and ask that you would be our teacher and guide as we take on another week. Bless us for having been part of this today and use us for the advancement of your kingdom. We pray for this in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.